Today on Fuzzy Logic, we're looking at your body clock and how that can help you in sport. We're looking at a computer that can play poker, don't count your chickens before they're hatched, and uh, how can you make those aha genius moments happen? All that and more coming up on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name's Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with us today as we take an hour out of your magnificent day to talk about science right here on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio. Thanks very much to Irish Voice for the program beforehand, uh, but now we're making our way from Ireland to the world of science. And uh, to help me on that journey today, I have Jared joining me in the studio. Good morning, Jared. Good morning, Broderick. How's your weekend been so far, Jared? Oh, it's been been quite relaxed, actually. Um, just been doing a bit of reading, reading up on some interesting new science, actually, that I'm keen to keen to chat with you and fuzzy listeners today. You never stop, do you? That's what you, you look at science during the week and on your weekend oh, as well. That's right. It's hard to stop. There's so much <laughs> out there. <laughs> and, and how about you, Brad? Have you been having a good weekend? I have. I uh, I did a lot of cleaning yesterday, which was exciting uh-huh. as can be. It has um, to be done. That's right. Yeah. But then uh, I had the reward at yesterday evening of watching the Socceroos take out the Asian Cup of football. Very oh, exciting yeah. match, Jared. Yeah, was, I heard it was right down right down to the wire, right yeah, at the end. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, it was well done because the, the Socceroos got their first goal at the end of the first half, mm-hmm. and then it looked like we were going to win it, and then right at the end of the second half, Korea gets their equaliser, and so then they go into two halves of overtime, and right at the end of the first half of overtime, the Aussies get their goal, and it's like, what's going to happen at the end of the second half? But no. By then, the Aussies had shown their domination. Right, and, uh, right. We were able to win 2-1. Exciting times. Exciting very, times. Very exciting. Well, you know, it actually uh, it, it makes me wonder whether maybe what, what gave Australia just the edge uh, on the game last night is perhaps the Australians had a few more night owls in their team. Because the game, of course, kicked off at about about eight o'clock That's last right. night. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, um, which works well for broadcasters. It, it works well for spectators and the audience who want to might have other things going on during the day. But how does how does this work for players? I mean, what happens if you're an early morning riser and you have to get out and play your best at eight o'clock? In the evening. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because you'd think you'd be able to, you know, reset your body. Because uh, there was talk about this for, I think it's the, the upcoming Olympics, that all the um, swimming events were going to be at some ridiculous hour in the morning. Right. Um, all their finals happening at this, this random time and everyone was complaining about it. Um, do you reckon it can have an effect on what goes on? Well, there's actually uh, there's a recent study that's, that's weighed in on this question. And it, this recent study suggests that your body clock and your, your sleeping pattern can influence the the time of day when you're at your peak performance athletically. So uh, Elise Faser-Childs and uh, Roland Brandstetter at the University of Birmingham, they conducted a study where they categorised a a group of hockey players into different types of uh, sort of body clock types. So there were the early morning people, what you might call the the larks or the early birds, and there were sort of the intermediate type people, and also... The night owls, those who, who stay up late in the evening, have a bit more difficulty getting up in the morning. And, then, and the next thing that they did is that they had these hockey players con- complete the beep test at, at different times of the day. Have you ever, ever done a beep test, Broderick? I, I have. I did it once at the beginning of high school, and um, that was plenty for me. Right, right. <laughs> They're pretty exhausting. Yeah. If any listeners who haven't done the beep test, it's a bit of a grueling process of a, sort of a 20-metre shuttle run back and forth that increases at, in speed, and you keep going until you're exhausted or until you can no longer... No longer make keep it. up with the beeps. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So... <laughs> At the start, you just kind of run backwards and forwards and then stand there for a bit. It's very slow. And then you're just sprinting, sprinting yes. these bits. Yes, it hoping, starts... that, hoping it doesn't beep before you. That's right. It yeah, starts yeah. to get very intense. So they had these hockey players doing these beep tests at, at different times of the day from 7 a.m. through to 10 p.m. Okay. At night. Um, and, and this is sort of taking place over the course of a few weeks. And what, what they found is that if you look at the group as a whole, 
people generally perform their best in the late afternoon or early evening, which right. is which is kind of consistent with previous research. But what this study did is they t- they had a bit of a closer look and had a look at people's different sort of body clock type. And the early birds, actually, they were best at about midday. The intermediate uh, type people were best at about 3 p.m. And the night owls weren't at their best until about 7 p.m. Ah. And in fact, it gets even more interesting if you look at the results in terms of people's entrained waking hour, which is kind of the, the time that you would wake up without an alarm clock, you yep. know, if you're sort of left to your own devices. And, and what they sound is found here is that the early birds and the intermediate type people, they were both at their best about six hours uh, after waking up. But the night owls, they were not at their best until about 11 hours after that entrained waking time. So they're a bit, <laughs> bit slower to reach, wow. their, reach their peak performance. So that's kind of a, a strange thing if you're a night owl because if you are um, staying up later and then when you go to work the next morning, <laughs> you're not going to pick right. up until <laughs> after work's over, I'm thinking, <laughs> which is a bit strange. It is, yeah, and the the researchers kind of asked asked themselves why should this be the case, and mm. and that they suggested that it might be explained possibly by some hormonal differences with the the night owls, and it, it may be the case that with the night owl body clock, uh, the body's production of of cortisol um, might be delayed, uh, and cortisol and- being important for for muscle function, so that this being the the tie in there to the athletic performance, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, interesting, interesting results. It suggests that uh, maybe the type of sport you choose may may be best to play into your into your body clock. You know, if yeah. you're a bit of a night owl, it might be best to uh, opt for something that plays later in the in the evening, perhaps. Yeah. Well, did um, uh, did they mention anything about whether you can change your body clock well enough to to fit in with the the sports times? Well, that's the other thing. You can either choose a sport that that fits with your body clock, or you can work on uh, readjusting your body clock over time, which if, uh, is not not set in stone, but something that you can uh, you can can change adjust. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, I saw an interesting um, uh, piece this week on uh, your body clock and pressing that that dreaded snooze button. Um, oh, yes. You know, when you get up in the morning, do you, are you are you the person who gets up with your alarm, or do you snooze, snooze, snooze? I I'm terrible. I'm afraid <laughs> I have a whole. I have about ten alarms in sequence and uh, snooze through them all. Uh, it's only at the very end of that sequence that I, you know, finally the time comes. <laughs> Got to get out. You have to get up. Yeah. Well, yeah. I I used to um. Uh, I, I snooze one or two times, but after reading this article, I've, I've stopped the snooze. Uh-huh. When when the alarm goes off, I get up. And the reason being, um, well, actually, no, I don't get out of bed, but I actually don't go back to sleep. Um, and and the reason being was all to do with sleep cycles. Right. Um, so you were talking about hormones before, and, and one thing your body does is it produces uh, sleepy hormones when you're going to sleep. You know, when it's getting late at night, your body needs to rest. Right. And then when it gets time to around time to wake up it produces wake up hormones uh, to to make you to make you get up in the morning and uh what uh what people have found looking at the the snooze button is Mm -hmm. that uh it it affects your your sleep cycle because as you go through the night you obviously fall into deep sleep and there's there's various stages of sleep you know you fall into deep deep sleep and then you come out into a more um uh, a shallow sleep probably isn't the scientific term, but that, that's what it is, a lighter sleep, and then you go back into deep sleep. And um, what can sometimes happen is, is going around this sleep cycle when your alarm goes off, you want it to go off when you're coming out of that deep sleep and in the light sleep phase, mm-hmm. and then you have a really nice wake-up period. Right. Um, and there's actually some apps on the mobile phone, on um, yeah, smartphones that can try and tune into this and wake you up at the right time and all that sort of thing. Um, but if you don't have one of those, you just want to set an alarm, um, then your alarm comes in and, and it might cut into some of that deep sleep time. Uh, but then if you snooze... Um, and end up going back to sleep, that whole sleep cycle resets. Right. And so what can happen if you do go back to sleep is that you drop back into that deep sleep. And not only do you drop back, but you drop back really deep. And so next time the alarm goes off, it's not cutting in at the the end of the deep sleep cycle like it might have been, but it's cutting right in the middle of it. And so you wake up from a deeper sleep and feel even drowsier and worse than you did before. 
Right, right. Well, yeah, this, this is good information, and uh, hopefully it will be it will help. Yeah, in that that it still you know takes a bit of conviction though to avoid uh, determination to avoid pushing that sleep button. <laughs> it, nonetheless, it, it does, it yeah. does. And what I've started doing is uh, is turning my alarm off and then trying to sit up in bed, not getting out of bed, mm-hmm. but at least sitting up, so I don't go back to sleep now, and I can kind of keep this uh, awakeness happening <laughs> right. as best yes. I can. Yeah, just take take baby steps, slowly, yeah. slowly work out of it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So there you go. So that's another interesting thing. About sleep, I mean, it has such a huge effect on uh, on what's going on, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, I guess uh, we're quite lucky here at uh, Fuzzy Logic with the eleven thirty uh, start time. Uh, still provides for a bit of bit of sleep in it uh, does. On a Sunday it morning does. as I well. I don't mind a fuzzy day because I can uh, wake up in the morning, have a lazy breakfast, and then make my way down into the city studios <laughs> right here, which is good. Um, Anyway, moving along from uh, sleeping to something that doesn't sleep now, we're looking at computers and uh-huh. robots. Uh, well, actually, no, I take robots back. Robots was going to be my tie-in if we were talking about football because, of course, there is right. a, a robot football World Cup um, that oh, they really? have. Yeah, yeah, and I, I actually believe Australia won it recently. Well, um, we're doing pretty well with well, yeah. robots and humans, <laughs> well, yeah. both on top. <laughs> exactly. We're starting to dominate the football world yep. um, in there. Um, but... Uh, uh, no, not so much robots here, but computers and, and training them to play games. Uh, you know, it's been uh-huh. it's been quite a while that uh, computers have been trained to play um, games like uh, Connect Four and Checkers and Chess. Um, uh-huh. In fact, it was in uh, 1998 that Connect Four was solved by a computer, right? Um, and 2007. Uh, that drafts was solved by a computer. And the reason it can solve games like this is because uh, um, computer algorithms can work really well at cracking those games uh, where players know everything that has ha- occurred before making their move. Um, so this is called perfect information in terms of game theory, which is a, a right. branch of mathematics. So, you know, you imagine in a game of Connect Four, there's no hidden secret moves that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, your opponent can play. They can't hold back a piece because they're always going to be playing the red pieces and you're always playing the yellow right, ones and, right. and all the pieces that are in play are on the board. Mm-hmm. So it makes it very easy for a computer to calculate that. And the, the same with um, drafts or checkers and also chess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, we've, we've been developing computers that can do that can do a little better. There was uh, Watson, uh, developed by IBM, who was uh, made to play uh, Jeopardy, the the American quiz show. Which oh, is, right. Yeah, which was an interesting one because it was uh, a mix of... Uh, Obviously, Jeopardy is a trivia game, yeah. uh, but it, in the way its clues are set out, it uses word clues and, and crypticness in there to try and hint at, at what the answer might mm. be or refer to a specific person in terms of the answer. Um, and so that took a lot of training uh, for Watson to be able to understand that and yes. uh, a programming and uh, um, computer learning uh, for Watson to do that. Uh, but he did manage to beat some of the best Jeopardy players. It's quite an interesting right. <laughs> uh, show if you if you want to watch, um, you know, what Watson oh, can so do. So there's kind of footage of, of Watson up against uh, other players, there other is, human there players. There is. They, yeah. they, they staged it uh, like a proper Jeopardy game show with the host Alex Trebek and two of the, <laughs> two of the best Jeopardy players that, that are out there. And, uh, yeah, Watson, Watson did quite well. Um, but now, now we've got a computer um, who can now possibly make some money um, because this computer has been uh, trained to play poker. I see. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit worried, um, you know, because poker's a high-stakes game at times. That's right. Uh, yeah. But what, what they've done is they've trained uh, this computer to play poker, and, of course, poker is um, not a, uh, a perfect information game like Connect Four or Drafts. There's various hidden cards, there's right. bluffing, there's, there's a right. lot of thinking and... Um, uh, hum- humanity involved, I guess, in in the terms of uh, the way that the game is played. Mm-hmm. Um, you read your player and that sort of sure. thing. Um, but uh, what the, uh, these scientists have done is um, taught this computer to play poker. Now, now teaching computers is quite strange um, because uh, you obviously don't think they learn in the way that humans do, and they don't learn in quite the same way, but they do have a learning process, and so they can learn to follow uh, what happens in uh, different uh, phases of the game. 
Right. So uh, Cepheus is the name of the computer, and uh, they developed a whole heap of uh, mathematical algorithms for this game. And uh, then in its learning, it had to play the equivalent of a billion billion hands over two months. So a billion billion would be a one with 18 zeros (laughs) after it. It's a lot of games. That is, that is. And in fact, that's more poker than has been played by the entire human race. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, that's something that humans could never achieve, really. Yeah. Uh, and in this game, um, the machine learning uh, it reviewed every decision and learned which decisions paid off and which didn't pay off, and then used that information to play as perfect as possible. Uh, and so this Cepheus, the computer's strength lies in its ability to solve problems. There's a great deal of uncertainty because, of course, human players aren't sure what's going on, um, whereas the computer can do all the calculations. Now, of course, mm-hmm. a human playing Cepheus might win the occasional hand because right. there is still an element of luck involved. Yes. But uh, if you play out for a, a full game or in the long run, uh, Cepheus is going to come out on top. Wow. Yeah. This maybe uh, this is bad news for uh, casinos. I think you know if Cepheus walks in, walks in the door. Potentially, except for the fact that uh, I think the scientists cheated a bit, Jared. Oh, um, I because uh, if you've ever watched the poker on TV, they play Texas No Limits Hold'em generally. Um, Texas Hold'em uh-huh. No Limits. I beg your pardon. Um, which is the game where uh, there's they can raise an unlimited number of times, they can raise an unlimited number of money, depending on how much they have. No limits, as the name implies, means that they can. There's a lot of variations uh-huh. in the game, and uh, that then means that uh, there's a lot more reading of people and trying to work out whether they're bluffing or what game they're playing. But uh, Cepheus learned to play a uh, slightly different game called Heads Up Limit Hold'em. Uh, which means it's only played with two players, which is the heads mm-hmm. up part, and it has fixed best fixed bet sizes and a fixed number of raises as well. Right. So you can only bet a certain amount of money, and you can only increase that a certain number of times. Um, mm-hmm. So that means that it limits, as the limit <laughs> implies, <laughs> yes. limits the number of options in the game. So rather than um, in Texas, no limit hold'em. The number of decisions points would be uh, 10 to the power of 140 or a 1 with 140 zeros after it, which I don't even know how to say that number, Jared. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's quite big. It's mind, mind-bogglingly big. <laughs> mm, whereas a, uh, a heads-up limit game only has 10 to the power of 14 or 100 trillion options, which is one with 14 zeros after it. So it's a whole lot smaller uh, in terms of the number of options there, which means it cuts down the amount of learning that he has to do. So, uh, yeah, so look, it's not going to be necessarily winning any Texas No Limits Hold'em at uh, this point in time. Um, But what they're hoping is that some of the decision-making strategies that Cepheus has learned uh, will have an impact outside of Mm -hmm. poker. and uh, this oh, so, is this so they haven't been tra- developing this uh, robot for the purpose of gambling. No, after no, all. <laughs> that's no, that's not the the pure pure purpose. Um, what's uh, what they're hoping is that the strength that Cepheus has in its abil- is it in its ability to solve problems where there is uncertainty. Right. Um, and what previous examples have found is, um, you know, for example, the Jeopardy winning computer Watson that we were talking about before, mm-hmm. that's been able to help optimise cancer treatment uh, at Sloan Kettering uh, Health and provides financial advice at Citicorp and ANZ. Right. Um, <laughs> so this is helping people make decisions here. And so what mm-hmm. they're hoping is that uh, once you uh, do have a go, uh, with this again in some poker, <laughs> it might actually be useful in the real world to help us make some of those tough decisions uh, where we don't feel like we've got all the information, but it's much quicker and easier for this computer to analyse what's going on. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, some of the, the work that's being done uh, with robots and more broadly you know, with artificial intelligence is um, just amazing. Yeah, it's looking uh, to the years ahead, what, yes. uh, what kind of capabilities... Our robots are going to have indeed yeah. indeed they may be uh getting closer to having those personalities by making all these decisions and working out and through right. a uh, logical way how our emotions might work and that side of things who knows 
who knows we have to wait and see i think <laughs> indeed but the one cool thing is with this robot is that you can play him online oh um, really so yeah so i'm going to post the link to uh the poker playing robot up on our facebook page you can check it out just type fuzzy logic into facebook and uh, you can have a go against the robot and see how uh your skills match up to cepheus and uh yeah see if you can make decisions as well as he can or right. she can it can i'm not sure whether it has a gender Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I, I wouldn't wouldn't like to pit my skills uh, against uh, Cepheus. I don't think uh, no. I have pretty pretty limited uh, poker abilities. <laughs> yeah, I think we've been relying on luck yes. uh, much more than skill there. <laughs> the time is almost eleven fifty-five, twenty-three and a half degrees outside, and this is Fuzzy Logic on ninety-eight point three FM. Six times, six Now Webb there with his song Counselor Ed and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 98.3 FM 2XX Community Radio or potentially maybe you're listening online at 2XXFM.org.au or maybe it's uh, not February 1st and you're listening to us on the podcast which uh, is uh, easily downloaded. Uh, all you need to do is head to xx.podbean.com or you can just go to iTunes and type in Fuzzy Logic we're the one with the little autumn leaf logo and you can download us from there and it's even better on itunes because it then automatically updates if you do if we do put up a new episode lovely yeah. oh, i couldn't help but notice uh, in that last song a bit of a refrain at the end there six times six times six times and it actually ties into our next story that we've got here which is all about counting and, nu- <laughs> and, and numbers um, right actually. so but before we get to that i have a quick task for our listeners and and for you too broderick if if you like okay jared numbers on a sunday morning i'm not sure about this it's uh it's almost the afternoon so it might might be permissible this time but all it all it takes is uh to get out your your wallet or purse and empty out the the coins oh you want me to do this uh yes it's just a simple task okay hold on all right broderick's working on this now he's getting out his uh I don't, I, I don't have any coins, Jared. Oh, can oh. I still play this game? <laughs> well, uh, you can perhaps can perhaps imagine it. In can your, I do it with in my notes head, if you like? Oh, you can do it with your notes too if you like. Um, okay. If you like right. me, you'd be plagued by a mass of silver coins overtaking your uh, <laughs> wallet. Um, but all, all you have to do is just arrange them on the the table in front of you. Yep. In order of smallest to largest okay so in so, terms of value smallest to largest you can just okay. pop them down so i've got a five a table a 20 or two 20s and a 50 here okay um, okay so i'll put the five down 20 right. 20 50 right. Done. okay all right. right excellent work so brother he's set down his uh, notes in order of ascending value yep. now if you're like brother can probably like a lot of people, I'd, I'd be willing to wager that you've arranged them from left to right. The smallest yep. value is on the left and the largest is on the right. That's right. Five on the left, 50 on the right. Yep, yep. And, and I guess this comes as, as no surprise since we are, um, at least in the English, English-speaking world here, educated to read from left to right and with words and numbers kind of increasing from left to right. Of course, this isn't the the case in all cultures. Um, for example, um, in Arabic, um, writing runs from from right to left. But but there's an interesting question here about whether this tendency to arrange numbers one way or another is just sort of a product of convention of our culture and our education, or is it somehow embedded in in our, our biology, in our evolutionary history? And it's actually a question that was tackled by a a group of researchers at the University of Padua in Italy, um, led by Rosa Rugani. They set out to try and answer this question, and they did it by using newborn chicks or baby chickens. And they were interested in seeing whether these chicks represented their mental number line, like we do in, in the English language, with smaller numbers on the left and larger numbers on the right. So what they did is quite quite an interesting experiment. Um, is they trained the chicks to retrieve a, a mealworm, some food, from behind a cardboard panel with five dots printed on the panel. So once these chicks were familiarised with the idea that there was food behind the panel with 
with five dots. They then kind of increased the difficulty a little bit and they presented the chicks with two panels. Um, so in this case, the chicks had to make a decision were they to go and look behind the left-hand panel for the food or were they to go and look behind the right-hand panel and find the food. And what the, the researchers discovered, if, if the panel had fewer than five dots, uh, remembering that the chicks were trained to initially find the food behind five dots, if it was fewer than five dots, they would actually head over to the, the left-hand side and look behind the left-hand panel first. But if, if it was more than five dots on the panels, they'd, they'd head over on to the right-hand side and, uh, and check it out on there. Yeah. And then there was actually uh, repeated the result Again, but, but this time training the chicks with, with 20 dots on the panels. But again, they found if, if they presented panels that had fewer than 20, the chicks would head over and look behind the left first. But more than 20, they'd head over and check out behind the right, which is consistent with this idea of a, a mental number line that starts on the left with smaller numbers and then extends through to the right yeah. uh, for the larger numbers. Um, so that this result, the researchers suggest, is actually this mental number line running from left to right is is embedded, sort of in our in our biology. They they suggest, and and of course, cultural influences and educational influences uh, are also important, as we know from, in, say, for example, in the case of of Arabic. Um, but that's, they suggest that it may even come down to asymmetries in in the brain that are common to to birds and and both humans, and that this idea of representing small numbers on the left through to larger numbers on the right is uh, somehow innate mm. and and not necessarily uh, learned. Though education and culture can certainly play an influence as well. Yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, it's quite interesting. It's actually worth noting that if you head to the the Guardian uh, website, their coverage of this science story actually includes some very cute footage of the the chicks uh, navigating the panels and deciding whether they're going to look behind the left or the right, depending on uh, the number of dots appearing. It's uh, it's very cute. So I'd recommend uh, checking I haven't, that one I haven't out. Looked, maybe I'll have yeah. to put it on the uh, the Facebook page. Um, when uh, when I find the league cup here, and we can have a look at these cute little chickens. Yes, yes. Going either side. <laughs> How very strange, though. I would have thought. Uh, well, I'm kind of impressed in some ways that they can count to numbers bigger than twenty. I mean, I, I suppose it's right. probably more visual, isn't it, rather than specific counting? Right. Well, yeah, that's something worth uh, worth noting. Is my understanding is that you know the chickens are not counting in the in the same sense as we are, but they are able to distinguish sort of between larger and smaller numbers. Um, and so it was on this kind of basis that they were choosing whether to go left or right rather than necessarily counting exactly to to 20. Yeah. Uh, ah, very interesting indeed. I wonder who thought to count chickens. Like, <laughs> like well, to make chickens count rather than not count chickens. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's uh, fascinating. <laughs> yes, it's a strange, strange idea, but... Uh, you know, these ideas have to come from somewhere, don't they? <laughs> that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I mean, and that's, um, I suppose, kind of brings me to our next story, which is, you know, all about ideas and, and how you have those those big ideas for testing. Um, you know, I think one of the, the, the best uh, aha moment that you can talk about is... Uh, well, there's a few in science. There's, you know, Newton sitting under the tree and the apple falls on his right. head and he goes, ah, aha, that's, you know, something pulling it down. It's gravity or Archimedes going into his very full bath and uh, right. he sits in and the bath overflows and then he fills it up some more. He sits in, the bath overflows, and then he goes, aha. Well, actually, he didn't go, aha. He said, eureka, running down the street naked because yes. <laughs> he was so excited as the story goes <laughs> yes kind of a, a strange one but then again some scientists are quite strange <laughs> you know so there, there are those moments and look uh, they're very nice stories but do you reckon when uh the the moments really happen like that do you reckon it was just that 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 you know that literally the, the apple hitting mm. us on the head moment or, or do you reckon there's a lot of work that goes do in behind it well, yeah, I guess, you know, it's a, a, co a combination of uh, having thought about 
the right things, being in the right context at the right time, I, I would guess. Yeah. Uh, not just, uh, not wholly as spontaneous as we think, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting one because, you know, what actually happens in our brain uh, when we're in the creative process is, is kind of unknown. Um, so, but uh, there is something different that happens and something that neuroscientists can actually measure, which is when we reach that, that apex of the moment, that aha moment, um, and uh, it's it's really interesting to see. Um, and so uh, scientists have been testing that uh, using um, looking at some insights. Uh, and to do it, um, I mean, it's really interesting because if you look at a, a, an MRI or an EEG, you can see this this small portion of the brain light up as right. though so that's the uh, the impressive aha moment uh, that comes through. Um, and so to to do this test. Um, the the scientists uh, gave uh, each of the participants an uh, an image, um, and uh, they had to do. Um, oh, sorry, they didn't give them an image. They gave them mental exercises for these nineteen people, right. and these were made up of uh, uh, hundreds of problems. And but they, they were designed so to isolate uh, the insightful moments that might happen uh, through that. Um, most of the ex- exercises look something like this. Um, oh, here, I'll give you a... You oh, can okay. do it with me. Okay, um, they were, The volunteers were given three words, uh, for example, uh, and then they had to come up with a word that could join each of the three words. So mm, in this case, uh, crab, pine, and sauce. Hmm. This is a good one. Tick, tick, tick. Crab, pine, and sauce. Crab, pine... And sauce. I'm struggling, Broderick. It's too, it's too difficult well, for me. I think me. the 10 seconds is up, Jared. It was uh, apple. <laughs> apple. Crab uh-huh. apple, pineapple, apple of course, sauce. Of course. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and then immediately after each answer, those participants had to push a button to indicate whether they thought of it suddenly, like it was like an inspired, ah, mm-hmm. or... Uh, without thinking they th- felt, or whether they had to think about it and take time mm-hmm. to solve it methodically. As, as I did, thinking methodically uh, to no avail. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You didn't have that aha moment. Right. Um, and so what the scientists then did is separated the questions that were solved with uh, insight uh, from the ones that were solved analytically. Um, and uh, so they found these these two distinct types of activity that people's brains lit up with. One corresponds to what happens in the brain when we use that insight, the aha moment, and the other is related to what our brains do when they, they use analytical processes to solve mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really interesting to see this different activity. Um, for the analytical problems, our brains become active around the visual cortex, right. while for uh, creative problems, our brains show more activity around the ears and the midbrain. Um, so what does it really mean? Well, um, it means that there's, uh, there's a whole lot of, um, things that, that are happening here, but, uh, it's also worth realizing that, uh, the whole creative process that leads up to those moments of insight generally unfolds gradually, uh, as we turn an idea over and over in our heads or as a uh, new knowledge is built up or right. build one idea upon the other, um, you know, and uh, the the unfolding is a constant process, um, and gets uh, you know we as we get more ideas in our head, uh, more stuff gets made available with every new piece of information we learn, um, and so there's there's a, a huge range of things um, that can take place. So look, I think I think the conclusion is. Um, you know, if you are struggling with a complex problem, waiting for that eureka moment, you just mm-hmm. have to be patient and, and give yourself time, give your, your idea enough time to make its way around in your head uh, to um, right. Just to let find it, the spot. Let it find the spot. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, interestingly, speaking of uh, thinking on things for many years and that aha moment, mm. um, there's an interesting story actually relating to the discovery of a new chemical bond. Um, back sort of in the in the late 1980s, uh, Dom- Donald Fleming and his colleagues uh, were conducting some experiments uh, with muonium. Now, what is muonium? Mm. You, you may ask, as as I did. Um, <laughs> well, it's a it's like hydrogen, but whereas uh, hydrogen uh, consists of one negatively charged electron and one positively charged proton. Muonium uh, consists of one negatively charged electron and one positively charged anti-muon, the anti-muon being just a really tiny positively charged 
particle. So this muonium is is like hydrogen, except uh, that the positively charged nucleus at its centre is really much much smaller, so quite okay. tiny. And uh, what what they found is that they were reacting this muonium with with bromine and and other other elements. And they, and when they were reacting it with bromine, the reaction actually slowed down as the temperature increased. Which isn't which, what things normally do. Right, right, yeah. Typically, yeah. as you increase the temperature, the reaction speeds up. Uh, and and this was quite quite puzzling to yeah. to Fleming and his colleagues. And Fleming wondered whether this might be due to the formation of a new kind of chemical bond that mm. had been discussed uh, some years or proposed some years earlier uh, called a vibrational bond uh, between this muonium and uh, two bromine atoms. And uh, he describes it uh, in an article um, by Scientific American um, as as being a bit like a ping-pong ball sort of rattling between two large bowling balls because okay. this muonium is very tiny. Yeah. Bromine atoms quite large um so it's it's kind of been something that's uh he's been been thinking on uh, all this time yeah. uh, ruminating on and that only recently have they uh, managed to do some further further work on this some further experimental work which also points towards the existence of this uh, vibrational bond and then then last year late last year paper came out where they did some computational chemistry so they used computers to sort of model how these interactions take place yeah uh, that also also supported this idea of a, a vibrational bond um which is um yeah a, pro- a property of this of this tiny um, muonium um so i guess you could say that way back uh, back in 1989 i think it was when they were first had this bizarre result um maybe it was an aha moment um when they first made the connection to the vibrational bond, but a lot of reflection since then and further work is also uh, pointing and adding up, adding up the evidence that yeah. uh, this is something we should uh, perhaps add to the list of other other types of chemical bonds. There we go. Very interesting indeed, and you know it makes me wonder when all these scientists had their their aha moments. Do they jump up and you know get excited, jump in the air, dance about? Well, uh, I I don't see any reason why not. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, uh, look, now it's your opportunity to, to dance about because uh, we're going to put some music on. This is the Wombats with their song "Let's Dance to Joy Division." Wombats there with the. <laughs> their song let's dance to joy division and uh we're gonna make our way now from uh, wombats to uh some different australian animals <laughs> although the wombats aren't australian but anyway um one of our regular presenters ian uh recently traveled out to mulligan's flat woodland sanctuary which is uh, probably one of canberra's best kept secrets i hadn't heard about it till ian told me have you been to mulligan's flat jared i have not Oh, I better turn your mic on. Try again. No, I haven't, no. I haven't been there, uh, right? No. No, no. So um, I think I'm going to have to go out there because uh, he had a really interesting interview with the, the senior ecologist and conservationist there, Dr. Kate Grarock, who has the uh, job of increasing Canberra's awareness of this great treasure, taking people on night tours and spotlighting, and all in all, getting more people to see some of the amazing sights inside. So uh, Dr. Kate had a chat to Ian, and uh, here's Ian's interview. So here we are with Dr. Kate Grarock. We're out in nature doing our interview. It's a lovely day. So Kate's the senior ecologist at the Mulligan's Flat uh, Woodland Sanctuary. And she's going to tell us a bit more about what Mulligan's Flat Woodland Sanctuary is all about. So welcome, Kate. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Um, Mulligan's Flat is basically a really special one, much like the the nature parks that they've got in Canberra. It's a really special one, though, because it's uh, what's called boxgum grassy woodlands. And this is an ecosystem that's critically endangered. So something like 92% of boxgum grassy woodlands have been cleared since European settlement. So it's really wonderful to have such a massive parcel of this boxgum grassy woodland in um, protected and so close to uh, the Canberra suburbs. Yeah, so it's great to see that the woodland sanctuary is like it's it's basically all about conservation there. So you're conserving lots of plant species, but I guess what a lot of people are really interested in are the cute and, and cuddly and and fuzzy animals. So you're currently doing a conservation program with something called a bushstone curlew, which we'll talk a bit about, batongs. Yep. 
which sound a bit like what they do. They batong around everywhere and something called a New Holland mouse as well. So let's start. What's a, a bushstone curlew and what are you doing with them? Yeah, so just taking one step back, basically uh, this history of European settlement and the clearing of woodlands, um, introduction of predators such as foxes and cats has led to a massive decline in a lot of our native species. So they just can't cope with um, massive predators like cats and foxes. Um, so at Mulligans, we have a predator-proof sanctuary fence. Um, so this, uh, we're able to remove all the foxes and cats from that area. And with that, um, then allowed us to reintroduce these species that you're talking about here. So the bushstone curlew, I think the last one was seen something like 40 years ago here in the Canberra region. So it's sort of a large bird. Um, it it uh, roosts, so it's a nighttime bird, but it, during the day it hides in sort of fallen timber. And they've all sort of been taken out of the area once again because of foxes and cats and removal of um, fallen timber, which they use to hide. So they kind of look like a plover or a masked lapwing. <laughs> but a little bit cooler because they've got these massive googly eyes um, because they're nocturnal. And they'll run around all night um, chasing frogs, maybe even small mice, insects. And so they have this really haunting call, which can be um, sometimes referred to as sounds like someone being murdered. So uh, I think in Queensland they call them the murder birds. So they're really quite a charismatic species, and it's wonderful having them back here in the woodland. And um, we're hoping again to reintroduce a whole other bunch uh, this year. Yeah, I think I've heard that scream um, in in North Queensland. Yeah, Is that where yeah, it's really so, common? Um, and does it yeah. it mainly does it um, before rain as well? I've or, heard that. I've yeah. heard that. I mean, I'm not entirely sure on the the technicalities of that one, but definitely, yeah, they uh, they they're quite a vocal bird. Yeah, because I think there have been actually complaints from from <laughs> residents previously, not in Canberra, but from North Queensland, where I heard complaints where residents actually th- thought someone was being murdered and they realised that it was the bird. So it's kind of an interesting call. I wonder how that one came about in evolution. So there's batongs as well. So how many batongs are out there currently? <laughs> uh, yep. So yeah, um, often they're called batongs, betongs, um, either or. So basically this is a type of betong called the Eastern betong or the Tasmanian betong. So they um, used to be sort of widespread on the eastern sort of just inland area all the way from Queensland down through New South Wales um, and Victoria but um, once again because of the introduction of predators such as fox and cat they've become completely extinct on the Australian mainland. Um, They only now exist in Tasmania and some people have concern over um, things like the potential for foxes to perhaps um, get them if they were introduced uh, to to Tasmania and also there's issues with devil facial tumour down there so the number of devils are reducing potentially increasing the number of cats and having a big impact on them so it's amazing having this population here in Canberra um, and the estimates are just under 200 uh, betongs now within the Mulligans Flat Woodland Sanctuary so it's really exciting times. Yeah so they're both two animals that I guess are sort of your, your larger species, um, if you can call a batong a large species, <laughs> probably not quite so much, not as big as a kangaroo. Um, but then we've got, we go a bit smaller and we go to the New Holland mouse. So that obviously sounds like something that's been named by a European. So tell us more about that. Yeah, so I mean, to the to the normal everyday person, they probably just think they look like a house mouse, but they've, they've got a few small different things. Um, maybe a, a more pointed nose and things like that to distinguish them from a house mouse. Probably my favourite thing that distinguishes them from a house mouse is they don't stink. Um, they certainly do not invade homes. Um, but this is all about recreating that ecosystem that used to be there. So by bringing in these smaller smaller mammals and things, we're starting to rebuild that ecosystem. Um, and then the hope one day that we can reintroduce um, some larger predators such as um, the uh, eastern quoll. So Mulligan's Flat is essentially a really special place in Canberra, I suppose. And do you find that many people in Canberra actually know that it exists? <laughs> yeah, sometimes we joke that it's a, the best kept secret. And I guess that's where my role's coming in. We're, we're starting to do a lot more night walks, um, get school groups out there and try and show people what an amazingly exciting place woodlands can be. Um, and probably the other thing that I'd say that's really exciting about Mulligans is the amount of research that's going in there. So we're learning about woodland restoration with the Australian National University. And those lessons we're learning from there, we're then sharing with other land managers. Um, so certain things that we've done in Mulligans, such as um, adding fallen timber, they're now doing that to other reserves within Canberra. So it's really exciting to see those lessons being shared and used elsewhere. 
Yeah, so like you were saying, your role very much involves outreach and, and community engagement. So tell us a bit about the, the programs that are on offer and the, and the night walks. I believe that you can still go on them if you want to. Yep, so the night walks have been really, uh, really fun um, and uh, basically, the concept is to go out there, um, learn a bit about the woodland, learn a bit about the science, um, and then we walk around at night. So it's quite surprising the number of people in Canberra that haven't actually even experienced the bush at night. So there's different sights and smells. Um, and then obviously, always, it's quite nice to see an eastern betong um, digging around for its truffles, um, something that can't um you know you couldn't see um like it, because they became extinct about 100 years ago so it's really special to see these species back in the woodland yeah it's great so what's the plan i guess for say the next five to ten years with the sanctuary 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 yes yeah, so the, the australian national university um under associate professor adrian manning have been really successful in getting a grant to help them reintroduce three further species so once again that's about recreating this ecosystem um so that's sort of starting with the eastern chestnut mouse so it's sort of a larger native mouse species um then the yellow-footed antichinus which is a cool little i like to call it like a, a super mouse so it's a very fast moving small mammal um runs up trees along the forest floor and it's really really quite a charismatic little little species um, and then the ultimate one we would love to get in there is the eastern quoll um, and so once again uh, I guess some people call the quolls a native cat but this little guy they're very small they're only about 1.5 kilos in size the males and the females are about 800 grams so it's a tiny little species um, so they actually mostly prey on um, small insects frogs and very small mice um, so I'll be really excited to see them back in there. Yeah, it sounds great. And so I suppose that anyone can just go into Mulligan's Flat during the day and have a look around, but most of the species in there are nocturnal species, so that's why you offer the the evening walks, the late night walks, which is really cool. Um, and they're completely free, aren't they? Um, no, sorry, they're not. <laughs> um, I'll take that back. <laughs> um, yeah, originally we started up with doing it, but then just to raise some money for the conservation and things like that, we've we've put a, a small, well, not a terribly small, <laughs> a $50 fee basically, um, and that money goes straight back into conservation. So it goes into projects such as the Bushstone Curlew. But yeah, most of our species are nocturnal, and so it is, it is hard to see a lot of species during the day. But one thing I would say is I, I would encourage people to go there during the day because you'll see things like lizards, um echidnas are quite regularly seen there you can see the eastern grey kangaroos swamp wallabies redneck wallabies so there is a whole range of species and there's a massive amount of bird species and that's um, probably a huge draw for a lot of our ornithologists in canberra great well thanks for joining me um and it's, it's great to hear more about mulligan's flat so you can find out more on their website which is pretty simple it's mulligansflat.org.au we'll put up a, a link to that on our facebook page as well um and they also have a facebook page which is just well if you do a search for mulligan's flat it'll come up so thank you dr grarock for for joining us yeah we hope that more people go, go to your uh, evening walks and and see some some of our cool animals in canberra um the only other thing i'd add is we've got another website that's a little bit more dynamic that's happening at the moment it's um betongs plural.org um and that's where you can actually book the night walks thank cool you. thank you Thanks, Ian, there with uh, Dr. Kate Grarock from Mulligan's Flat Woodland Sanctuary. And, uh, yeah, as uh, Ian said, we will post a link on the Facebook um, to betongs.org. Go and check it out. Uh, you can book some of those night tours there, and I think I'll be heading out there and checking it out soon and uncovering this Canberra secret um, that's out there. But uh, before we finish off today's episode, I wanted to share one last story with you. And this actually gives you the opportunity to do a, a do try this at home um, here on Fuzzy. I didn't prepare one today, but uh, there's, a, there's a great illusion that you can uh, tr uh, play on uh, people. And uh, it's all about, you know, we're often used to optical illusions, but these ones are, are physical illusions. And to do it, you need... Uh, Three boxes of, of different sizes and a bit of variation in them always works well. Um, or you can choose three different size containers. The only requirement is that they have to be uh, opaque. You can't see inside them. Um, and then what you need to do is you need to find some plasticine or something like that and uh, try and put the plasticine in the boxes and you might need some scales to make sure such that all the boxes weigh the same. 
Now, what that does is it kind of messes with your mind a little bit because if you got, get someone like, uh, you know, someone at home to you know, come up and um, pick up the boxes, tell me which box do you think's heaviest, um, they'll pick up the boxes and they'll be a bit confused because uh, the, the big box they might expect to weigh a little bit and maybe the middle box will be a bit heavier than they think, but then the really small box um, will be a lot heavier than they think. And despite the fact they're all the same, because of the varying sizes, people will have varying ideas about what the boxes actually weigh. So you have to go home and test it out and see if they think the small box is heavier than it really is compared to the others, um, when in fact you've made sure and weighed them and they're all the same size. Uh, and an interesting story came out a, a week or so ago that uh, this illusion doesn't just fool people who can see the boxes, it can also fool blind people too. Now, not just every blind person, but blind people who rely on echolocation. Uh, now, echolocation you might have uh, heard of before. It's uh, something that's used to navigate and find food for bats. But blind people can actually use echolocation uh, to uh, experience uh, the room that's around them and things that are in front of them, just like bats do. Um, and what they found, the scientists found from uh, the Harriet Watt University in Scotland, um, when they tested uh, these blind people using echolocation on these different or these identically weighted boxes that should have felt the same but because their different sizes appear to be different, um, they found that they got the illusion too in that they predicted that the, some boxes were heavier than others despite the fact they're all the same. So this kind of shows that maybe, maybe when they're using echolocation, it's stimulating the, uh, the visual cortex in their brain so they're kind of seeing with sound. Yeah, I, I know I've been caught out by similar things many times. The, the old, uh, you pick up a can of soft drink and you think it's full, but it's actually almost empty and it almost hit, hits the ceiling. <laughs> that's yeah. right, that's yeah. right. Uh, and uh, speaking of soft drink, Jared, I think it's time for lunch. I think it's getting pretty close, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we might have to head out and uh, finish up Fuzzy Logic for the day. But thanks very much for joining me in the studio, Jared. Oh, no, thanks very much for having me. It's and, been great fun. <laughs> and thank you, listeners, for tuning in too. Uh, if you haven't yet, check out our Facebook page. There's a few links up there from today's show, and you can always download our podcast. Head to iTunes and type in Fuzzy Logic. We'll be back again next week. It's going to be uh, Rod in the studio next week, and he's going to be talking science for you. Same time, same station. Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.